Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. The environmental movement seems to have wanted to sort of almost freeze the world at some particular state and try and stop it changing. But it's always changed and it's always going to continue to change. And it's really completely arbitrary whether a species arrived in a new area 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years, or whatever it was. And yet we as people tend to favor the ones that arrived longer time ago and dislike and often try and remove the ones that have only just turned up. And it's a bit bizarre if you live in if you live in Ireland or you live in England, because nearly all of the species that live around us have arrived within the last 10 to 12,000 years, which was when the last ice age finished. So nearly all of our, in the, if you think of the history of life on Earth, which goes back not just millions, but tens and hundreds of millions of years, then 10,000 years ago is no time at all. They're all recent arrivals. We see the state of the earth as it is, not as it would have been had humans existed. The insightful words of British biologist, ecologist and teacher Christy Thomas from his illuminating new book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Are we facing the sixth mass extinction? And how do we determine it? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to tackle those questions with British evolutionary biologist, writer and teacher, Dr. Christy Thomas, who argues in his new book, Inheritors of the Earth, that we have to accept that a world without change is not a viable option. Chris goes on to state, we should not ignore the gain side of the great biological equation of life. It is vital that we take the broad view, considering all the evidence, if we are to draw conclusions that run somewhat counter to the paradigm of biological decline that predominates among ecologists and environmentalists. So, are we annihilating life on our planet? Or have we failed to understand how our planet works? Hello, my name's uh, Chris Thomas. I'm a biology professor from the University of York in England. And I've just written a book called Inheritors of the Earth, um, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. And the line that I take is to recognize that whilst humans are causing lots of harm to the biological planet that we get upset about, there are very many species of animals and plants around the world that are actually taking advantage of the new environment that humans are creating. Um, And amazingly, species are starting to evolve adaptations to be able to live with people, and even new species are coming into existence. So amazingly, nature is, if you like, fighting back. And this is a story about that fight back. And so as we think about the human place in the world, we have to think of humans not only as destroyers of nature, but also uh, as a force that is promoting diversification of the natural world at the same time. And we need to consider both of those things if we're to think in the future about how we might manage the biological world um, so that it survives as well as possible and that humans have, if you like, a good time in this biological world. What an optimistic and informative read, Chris, Inheritors of the Earth. I have to say I really enjoyed it. I loved visiting with you some of these wonderful uh, far-flung uh, tropical locations and how you describe the wildlife is absolutely uh, riveting. Um, I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Is the story of the Earth and essentially life all about gains and losses? What do you think? Yes, it is. And it's a story about humans being part of that natural world. I think when we think of nature, we often think that there's a sort of biological world out there that humans cause harm to. But 
the reality is that humans evolved within the biological system of our planet and and the biological world has responded to that. And so there are pros as well as cons of this changing world. So how well is the Earth coping with the impacts of humanity? Like, how do you see it now? How well are we doing? Well, there's a lot of discussion of whether humans are going to cause or are in the process of causing a mass extinction. And at a small scale, that's certainly true. But at the moment, we're not causing a mass extinction that rivals, for example, with the one that killed off the dinosaurs. But what we're also doing is stimulating new evolutionary change. So if you go out into the countryside and you look at all the animals and plants living around the place where you live, what you'll see is lots and lots of species living in a completely human-modified world. And these ones have been successful. Um, they, many of them are perfectly capable of dealing with sort of human disturbances in the countryside. Uh, so most of the species that we're familiar with, whether we live in a town or a farmed landscape uh, in the country, in almost every case, the species that you see around you have actually been successfully adjusting to the human world rather than, if you like, just taking it lying down. But is it fair to argue to a degree that we are approaching a form of extinction in in some parts of the world within Absolutely. some types of species? Not all, obviously, and I'm sure it ranges and changes from different locations. But I would presume that some are more hard hit than others. Those who aren't as, whether they're from an adaptive point of view, as resilient are, you know, dependent on, um, I suppose, fertility and reproductive uh, timelines and stuff like that. That, that all has an impact, doesn't it? You're totally right. It, both the place matters and um, the type of animal or plant. So, for example, um, the slow breeding uh, large animals, the large mammals in particular, well, we've exterminated most of those already from mammoths in um, Europe and Asia. I mean, if, um, if humans didn't exist, there would still be rhinoceros and elephants living in Europe. Um, there'd be giant ground sloths living in North America. So we have already exterminated the majority of the very largest land mammals. And fortunately, um, the largest sea mammals have mainly escaped, as in the great whales, that we did our best in the last century to wipe them out. But we seem as a human species to have just pulled back from that abyss. Then, of course, there are environments that are much more um, susceptible to change than others. And if you take a hectare or, of rainforest and you turn it into um, so a soybean field or something, then at least locally, you greatly reduce the number of species that are there. But all of these habitat changes that we're causing around the world um, which we should uh, minimize where possible. But what you often then find is that successful species then move into these new environments that we've created. So in Brazil, for example, where they've removed uh, a lot of the forest and the Atlantic forest zone, um, sort of around Rio and Sao Paulo and so on, um, in fact, you get a, a bunch of new species of bird like um, cattle egrets, uh, cattle tyrants, which is a kind of flycatcher, burrowing owls that have got very long legs, which are good for running in grassland. And these sorts of animals have moved in to the human created grasslands. So it is a story of loss, but it is also a story of species being able to exploit the new environments that we've made. And it's interesting, irrespective of uh, what anyone's view is on climate change and the um, the catastrophe that we're all facing or not, um, it is interesting to see both how climate change and the rapid um, expansion of cities all over the world and urbanisation is also having an effect. And in some places as powerful as the, the climate changing effects of higher um, temperatures or more salt in the water or whatever it is. So climate change is a really uh, major driver of ecological change. And it's always been the case over the last 
uh, 5 million years, over the last 50 to 100 million years, the climate has periodically changed. And the way that species survive is by moving their distributions to locations where the climate remains suitable for them. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And although there, there isn't information from all parts of the world, from where we do know about, it seems like about three quarters of all of the animals that anyone has looked at have already, they're already on the move. And so the, the biological world is responding to this climate change in a way that increases the resilience of the natural world to the change. Of course, we should slow down and, if, and eventually stop the climate change if we possibly can. But um, the changes to where species are living in the world um, can be seen as, uh, as a strength of nature. In my own garden, if I go out and count um, butterflies in the summer, as I did this summer, then about a third of all of the individuals that I saw belong to species that used to live further south in England. And they've moved northwards. And in fact, I saw a speckled wood this morning. And if I had been in this garden 40 years ago, there wouldn't have been any speckled wood because they lived further south at that time uh, in England. They'd moved northwards towards the pole as a direct result of climate change. So this sort of indicates the flexibility of nature. And we need to appreciate that because if we're conservationists and, and environmentalists, which I certainly am, we need to appreciate that the world, that the changing world is part of the way that nature is dealing with humans. And therefore, rather than fighting biological change all of the time, in some instances, we should actually encourage it. Butterflies are hugely important in terms of pollination. So I'm just wondering if, as you, I think you quote somewhere that the comet butterfly has spread something like 350 kilometres since the 1970s or has at least um, moved northwards. How does that, in terms of the long view, affect issues related to pollination and then the ultimate impact on the environment and, and other things happening in the environment? So... The comma butterfly, yes, is a wonderful example because um, since the 1970s, at that time, a, it reached as far north as York, which is sort of halfway up, um, halfway between the south coast of England and uh, the north coast of Scotland. And now you can now find it in northeast Scotland around Aberdeen, and that's an amazing expansion in a short period of time. And you're right, the changing distributions of insects um, as a whole, not just butterflies, moths uh, seem to be quite successful, pollinators and bees are probably even, and hoverflies are probably even better at it. But they've all been moving their distributions. And um, that changes the relationship between insects and plants in all regions of the world that we know, have, know about at all. So it seems that these changing biological interactions and pollination, feeding on fruit, whatever it might be, this is taking place everywhere. And that's how our biological systems are changing. And we shouldn't assume that because the biological systems are changing that that automatically means things are worse. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And if species of insect moved fur move further north, that on the whole would mean that the plants in the far north may actually now have more insects available to pollinate them. So sometimes the change is something that we would regard as a loss, but sometimes it's something we might also think of as beneficial, either to the plants that are being pollinated or to the way that we as humans interact with the landscape. You argue, Chris, in your introductions that we need to set today's changes in their appropriate historical context. And then you go on to say, you know, that this involves time spans much longer than we're used to thinking about in our everyday lives. And I thought that was really interesting. But then other people could argue that's a bit of a cop-out. So what do you say to that? Well, part of the reason for thinking um, long-term is that the, the environment is changing so fast at the moment that 
that over the time span of a century, which is the sort of more or less the maximum lifespan of a human at the moment, that over the course of a century, the amount of environmental change is of an order of magnitude the same as the kind of environmental change that we would normally see on the Earth over tens or hundreds of thousands of years, or in some cases, millions of years. The future climate by the end of this century is going to be the warmest that the Earth has been for over three million years, and the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere will probably be the highest it's been for about 20 million years. So we have to think about how the Earth has responded to long-term change to give us a kind of feel for how the natural world might respond to the extreme speed of environmental change that it's currently undergoing. The other reason for thinking about quite long um, periods of change is that in the conservation movement, there's been something of a historical tendency to think, well, let's minimize change. Um, let's go back to a sort of historical environment that used to exist in some rose-tinted past, usually. It might be 50 years ago. It might be 500 years ago. It might be before humans were important on the planet at all. But whatever it is, it's sometime in the past. Now, the difficulty with keeping things as they are, though, is given the background of climate change, the human population size, the amount of consumption, and therefore food we need to produce, people on the planet, the possibility of no change simply isn't on the table. And so what we've got to consider is different rates and magnitudes of change and which of them we, as a, within each country and as a human species, think is the most acceptable uh, way forward. But in any case, we just can't stop nature. We can't stop nature anyway because every process in ecology and evolution that we know about is a dynamic one. So you can't stop dynamics and have the system still work. And then you couple with that how much humans are currently perturbing the Earth system. So I think thinking about long-term change is really important because it gives us some ideas as to how the world might be changing the future and the sorts of directions of change that we might be more or less inclined to promote ourselves. Whether you can control climate change or not, I don't know. But certainly you can look at the economics of carbon policy and governments can think twice and possibly be a bit more pragmatic in how they um, uh, look at it. Totally. Um, Minimising greenhouse gas emissions in general, carbon dioxide in particular, is incredibly important because the faster the climate changes the less easy it is for all of the animals and plants in the world to adjust to it, partly by changing their distributions, because if the climate warms faster, then they've got to move faster in order to keep up with suitable environments where they can live. And uh, the more slowly the world changes, the greater the capacity of the uh, existing species on Earth to adjust, adapt, and evolve new adaptations to the changed world. So slowing the change down is, um, makes a great deal of sense. And in general, we should target the human drivers of change, like greenhouse gas emissions, like efficient agriculture, so that we produce as much food as possible on the minimum area of land, um, so that we, and we can continue to consider issues like human population and consumption, because Ultimately, these are the drivers of environmental change. You cite some astounding uh, statistics uh, throughout the book, and one of it is in relation to um, uses of productive land. And you say that you know thirty percent of the world's productive land is covered by pasture, supporting enormous numbers of large animals: one point five billion cattle, one point two billion sheep, one billion goats. And then you go on to say something on the lines of humans are hijacking over ninety-seven percent of mammal biomass to our own ends. Now I'm sitting quite comfortably here as a vegetarian for over 30 uh, years but that again is all policy 
and that is all down to governments uh, and how we look at land and land uses and how we manage our land, isn't it? It is and it isn't. Um, so it's it's great that um, many people are vegetarians and that um, quite a lot of people are reducing meat consumption. But the reality is I don't actually know of any country where as it has become richer, the average amount of meat consumption has gone down. And almost everywhere, as people have become richer, um, unless there's a religious constraint, it almost always seems to be the case that the per capita, per individual meat consumption tends to go up. And eating meat, of course, is very inefficient for the planet because rather than grow the plants and us eat them, you grow the plants and you feed them to cattle. The cattle use up most of that energy that comes from the plants to actually to heat their bodies. That's where, why it's so inefficient. So you need sort of 10 times the area or whatever of growing plants to get the same number of calories from eating an animal than if you had just eaten the plants yourself in the first instance. So how are we going to do this? Well, um, at the moment, as I say, we have kind of hijacked the uh, the mammal, the mammals and actually large birds as well. There's stupendous numbers of chickens alive today, the most, you could argue, almost most successful bird species on the planet. And so we've entered this sort of deal with animals, which is really rather odd, where we eat many of them, but we keep them in such a way that those that survive breed fast enough that there's always more of them. Now, if we want to move to a different system where more land is left over for the rest of nature, then we're going to have to find other ways of either replacing the protein that we're currently using uh, livestock for, or we're going to need to find other ways of uh, producing meat. And actually, I think that by, um, I don't know how long, but by the, perhaps by the middle of this century, um, the early attempts that are currently taking place to effectively grow meat in factories, in, in vats, where um, instead of growing your um, steak in a living cow, you actually grow it on a, on a laboratory bench. Um, in a sort of um, in a sort of solute that's got all the things that the muscles need to grow, and you stimulate it uh, to do so. So there's a lot of new research going into this kind of tissue culture. So I can imagine, perhaps not for your prime steak, but for um, many meat products, we might have gone over to this kind of factory production system, and that in fact can be very much more efficient in terms of both the land that is used up and the amount of plant um, carbohydrate that is required to get the things to grow. Chris, you visited uh, Borneo there a couple of years ago and um, one of the big uh, conservation areas. And um, you described some of the species that were there and and how things are changing. Yeah, so Borneo is really fascinating for all sorts of reasons. I strongly recommend it to anyone who wants a, a, a visit to somewhere interesting. Now, in um, the Danum Conservation Area in Borneo, where I spent a bit of time, you have some sort of extraordinary things because you've got a wild forest. Uh, Unfortunately, the rhinoceros are nearly extinct now, but you've got elephants there. And as far as anyone knows, the elephants are actually introduced. They're probably introduced as um, given as a gift um, to a former ruler in that part of the world. And now they're kind of wild in the forest. And where the, there are forest clearings, either for villages or for a research station that I visited, you find little flocks of tree sparrows. And these are Asian birds that have spread through the towns, villages, and uh, pretty much anywhere that there are people in Southeast Asia now. And so here is a, you seem to be in a pristine rainforest. But some of the big mammals that used to live there have been driven, at least they've disappeared or become extinct locally, even if the species still survive. You've got an imported elephant, which is now the biggest um, grazing 
browsing animal in the forest. And then you've got sort of Asian birds that are picking up scraps from the canteen. And so this is a sort of new world that we're starting to live in, where the sort of pre-human existence of what the planet was like before we turned up, we can't reconstruct it because all of the biological systems of the world now include both the previous biological world that used to exist and elements of it that have now changed because we have um, made so many differences. We've changed habitats, we've moved species either deliberately or accidentally. So we're now getting these sort of mixed biological communities coming into existence that is sort of a mixture of the pre-human and the post-human or the Anthropocene, as in the Anthropocene epoch that people talk about us now belonging to. And in this new mixed-up world, it's no longer possible to pull apart in any part of the world, really, the human and non-human determinants of what's going on. And I think whenever we think about nature, we now have to think of humans as part of nature rather than as a sort of separate entity that came along and disrupted uh, the natural world that used to exist before. Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with British evolutionary biologist, environmentalist and teacher Dr Christy Thomas about his new book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction, where Chris argues... Humans have not only changed the world's ecology, enabling house sparrows to spread around the world, we have also altered the trajectory of evolution. I asked Chris about his research trip to the Corcovado National Park in Costa Rica, which he describes as one of the world's greatest wild spaces. Costa Rica is just a fantastic country to visit and there's so much about the natural world to like and... um, their government policy seems to be and their sort of citizens seem to be much more sympathetic to nature than uh, in many other countries. One of the really interesting things about Costa Rica, though, is that it has a very long uh, history of humans changing the system. And again, we shouldn't think that Europeans suddenly arrived and, and the biologic world fell apart when uh, we did. So in Costa Rica, there used to be quite a large pre-Columbian population of Native Americans, and they had removed quite a bit of forest. They were uh, cultivating land. And if you look in some parts of the forest, you can find old structures that represent um, former agricultural activity. And in fact, of course, following the arrival of the conquistadors, they brought horrible diseases um, that the North, the North and Central American and South American human population were not resistant to. Uh, and so the human population collapsed in Central America. And so a lot of what was perceived to be um, pristine rainforest actually turned out to be former farmland that the um, trees had regrown on. And in that context, it tells us something rather uh, promising. Um, partly that very large numbers of animals and plants managed to survive human habitat alteration and came back when we stopped cultivating the land. And also that that we can accept that people and the rest of nature actually can get on together to some extent, provided that we don't just sort of bulldoze the entire lot. As long as we leave some areas where nature can just get on with it on its own, then, in fact, quite a high proportion of all of the animals and plants do manage to survive. That clearly happened previously in Central America, um, and it's happening in Costa Rica now. So there are still lots of problems, but a mixture of human activity and the rest of the natural world do seem to be compatible. And in Costa Rica, I like, the, like this idea because 
this has clearly been going on for many, many centuries, probably for several thousand years, that um, coexistence has been possible. But in terms of wild spaces and in terms of, as you said there, you know, allowing um, both wild spaces and then maybe whether it's managed rainforest or whatever it is, coexist and then both can flourish in their own way and be in relationship. How do you go about um, managing all that in real life terms? Because that will be incredibly difficult for all countries to do. And, you know, Costa Rica, you could argue, is a country who's built around tourism. And so that they have a very pragmatic approach to whether it's, um, you know, developing kind of carbon neutral economy, how they manage the, you know, the footfall in their forests and in their kind of green spaces. You know, they take a very tight approach because they realise this is their, their biggest uh, value for most, uh, for most people is tourism. Yes, I mean, there isn't a single silver bullet that works everywhere in the world. Um, So I suppose as well as thinking long term, I try to think globally in scope. And although it's not something I deal with specifically in the book, um, my main consideration would be how many people are there on the planet? And that seems to be evening off at the moment so that where it's about seven and a half billion people at the moment, and it might stabilize somewhere around 10, 11 billion. We need to make sure that the human population remains stable thereafter or even starts to decline. Then we've got the amount of um, food that's required. And here I think we have to think about, can we produce our food as efficiently as possible? By which I mean... um, in such a way that we do minimum amount of collateral damage to the uh, biological world. And this actually paradoxically requires us to uh, have rather a lot of very intensive agriculture because we need to be able to produce the food that people want to eat in the minimum possible area of land because otherwise we've got to cultivate it. There are some suggestions that we might need to nearly double the amount of food that's produced uh, between now and just after the middle of this century. But we cannot, it's just not viable, we cannot um, double the amount of farmland that is cultivated. That would be an environmental disaster. And anyway, we're already um, cultivating a substantial proportion of all of the more fertile land in any event. So... We actually need to have intensive agriculture in some places, and that might be particularly in some parts of the world, but in some parts of each country as well. And by having that intensive farming, that actually then leaves over more land that's available for wildlife to uh, flourish in. But, But realistically, the world is going to have to continue to produce more food for people, and so we can't have the whole thing as a sort of uh, integrated uh, romantic view of people and nature in a kind of complete harmony everywhere on the planet's surface. I found your um, chapter on the house sparrow very interesting. Uh, you argue that humans have had a love-hate relationship with the house sparrow for at least 5,000 years and possibly for 10,000. And, and then you go on to say that when it comes to conservation debates, this often seems as though we have set ourselves apart to act as referees and arbiters of how nature should be, yet our stance lacks consistency. Can you talk me through that and how you see it all? Because presumably, um, whether it's whether it's policymakers or just householders or gardeners or whoever, we're all a bit um, selective in terms of what species and plants we want around us. And, you know, we want to protect some, but we don't like others. Yes, well, I, I use the house sparrow in this context um, because it's particularly clear that for these sort of double standards, So in, uh, I'm not quite sure what the exact situation is in Ireland, but um, in a lot of Western Europe, the house sparrow has been declining slightly in the last 50 years, though it's now stabilized in Britain. And um, people are putting in conservation measures. They're putting up nest boxes when they're they're putting um, special bricks, which have got holes in, in in walls so there are places for them to nest. They're putting out 
beetle larvae, mealworms, um, for the adult um, sparrows to pick up and feed to their young. So there's quite a bit of conservation effort going on. And then I sort of asked myself, well, how many house sparrows would there be in Britain, or for that matter in Ireland, if humans hadn't come along? And there the answer is completely clear. We know the answer to that. The answer is zero. The reason there's house sparrows is because uh, 10,000 or so years ago, um, we started to cultivate um, cereal crops in the Middle East in the, um, uh, in the so-called Fertile Crescent. And house sparrows must have become associated with this farming, and they've um, picked at our wheat and other grains ever since, and they've nested in our houses. And so they've moved around. And, of course, if birds are nesting in our houses, they can be a bit irritating. Uh, they can steal our food. They can do uh, unmentionables on things that we would rather they didn't do unmentionables on. Uh, so, so obviously they can be annoying. But they're also sort of chirpy birds around the place, and people tend to like them. They're sort of familiar birds. So in Western Europe, where they've declined a bit, um, people decide we'd like to conserve them. And effectively what they're saying is we'd like to have as many house sparrows as there were in the 1970s, which is completely arbitrary, considering before humans arrived, there wasn't any agriculture in northwestern Europe and there weren't any house sparrows there. So, so the, all the house sparrows we've got are here because of us. Now you go over to North America, where the house sparrow arrived, rather than arriving a few thousand years ago, arrived um, um, in the Victorian era, and there, um, the house sparrows also pick up seeds. They also live in and around our houses, etc., etc. They essentially do exactly all the same things, and their people hate them because they didn't. They arrived so recently. They're not native. They're foreign birds. But the only reason they're in North America is because human intervention. We moved them in the first instance, and then they moved into farmed landscapes. So. The only reason our house sparrows in Britain and Ireland is because of people. We tend to like them, but not always. And the only reason they're in North America um, is because of people as well. And people tend not to like them, or at least the official conservationists don't, because they're not native. And this leads me to sort of a more general um, concern that the environmental movement seems to have wanted to sort of almost freeze the world at some particular state and try and stop it changing. But it's always changed, and it's always going to continue to change. And it's really completely arbitrary whether a species arrived in a new area 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years, or whatever it was. And Yet we as people tend to favor the ones that arrived longer time ago and dislike and often try and remove the ones that have only just turned up. And it's a bit bizarre if you live in, if you live in Ireland or you live in England because nearly all of the species that live around us have arrived within the last 10 to 12,000 years, which was when the last ice age finished. So nearly all of our, in the, if you think of the history of life on Earth, which goes back not just millions, but tens and hundreds of millions of years, then 10,000 years ago is no time at all. They're all recent arrivals. And, but we have decided that somehow we're going to be arbiters that when they arrived is somehow important. So unless they're actually directly harmful to us, we might as well just accept the situation as it now is uh, and get on with it. But it's interesting when you look at, you know, the stories that you grow up with as a child, you know, whether it's about native trees and the spirituality within the native trees and how they're attached to the national story or have religious um, value of some sort or they're kind of associated with the kind of the national identity. 
and then you can understand how some are placed and given greater significance. But when you do look at some alien species and then you look at, you know, stuff like Japanese knotweed, which is invading gardens all over Ireland and I'm sure all across the UK as well, you know, we need to manage some of these um, problems um, on an international level as well as a national level, don't we? I, I agree completely. Not all species are convenient to people, but it isn't because of when they arrived or whether we consider their native in some way that means whether they're harmful or not to us. Um, so, so let's take, um, so, you know, bracken as a plant is, can grow um, over large areas of uh, land. In fact, it grows over much air- larger areas of land than Japanese knotweed does. Imagine what would happen if we didn't have any stinging nettles and stinging nettles arrived. We'd be treating like it was this absolutely horrendous foreign thing that had come to sting us and ruin our gardening and our walks in the countryside. But it's, it's, uh, we get on with it. And actually, most conservationists then point out all of the sort of nature that's associated with it. So what I would suggest is that we should, rather than judge a species by its origins, its geographic origins, or the exact time that it has been present in a particular location, we should judge it by its consequences. And the consequences of some species are that they're inconvenient to people. Certainly anything that is a disease of our livestock or ourselves, which is, and these are species, um, that uh, these are things that we would rather try and minimize and get rid of if possible. Then there are other species that, um, that we'd be quite happy with, regardless of how long they've been around. So, Yes, some species are problematic to people, but it's not because they're foreign. Chris, you talk about the importance of hybridisation um, in the book, and you talk about how humans are causing a rapid increase in the rates of new hybrids and how they're forming. I thought that was very interesting, but I'm not sure did I actually get it. Um, can you talk me through it all? Well, people are um, moving animals and particularly plants around the world. And when that happens is that you get two or more species um, that or that people used to regard as separate species, you find that occasionally they can hybridize. And then the new hybrid individuals, in some cases they'll be unsuccessful, but in other cases they might turn out to be uh, well adapted to the new world. So um, speaking on a radio program, I can't see what your appearance is, so I can't guess your uh, long-term origins, but I am a white Western European, uh, a Northern European, and I know that as a result of that, I will have several percentage of my genes in my body will have originated in Neanderthal humans. Because when modern humans spread into uh, Europe, uh, our ancestors hybridized with uh, Neanderthals. And to this day, we all carry Neanderthal genes with us. Now, exactly the same thing is happening in very large numbers of animals and plants, either because they move into human-modified environments or because we... Um, let's say if it was um, uh, plants that have got seeds in a bale of hay that someone took from Europe to North America with their livestock several hundred years ago, and the seeds then started to grow in a new part of the world. And then those plants then meet up with the native species in the area where they just arrived. And then there is the possibility that they will hybridize. And because we're moving species around the world so much, the rate at which different types of animals and plants are hybridizing with one another is at an unprecedented level. So let me give you one example. Um, and that's a kind of monkey flower. Monkey flowers in the 
uh, genus Mimulus. They're sort of bright yellow, very attractive. They're used as um, uh, Manian sort of ponds and around marshy ground as sort of garden plants. Well, in Britain, um, and particularly in Scotland, there are a couple of these species of monkey flower that were grown. One of them originated, its ancestors came from South America, and the other one, its ancestors came from North America. They met somewhere in Britain. Happy days, they, uh, they made friends, shall we say, and they produced, although they were regarded as separate species of monkey flower, they produced offspring. But their offspring were sterile, and so although their offspring could grow, they couldn't expand all around the country very easily because they were just vegetated. But then there was a genetic change, and accidentally the chromosome number doubled. And then suddenly this what had been a sterile form turned into a plant that could reproduce sexually with, the, with other um, monkey flowers. And now there is a new species of monkey flower that only lives in Scotland. Its ancestors, some of its ancestors come from South America, some from North America, and their, um, their um, new hybrid offspring live in Scotland and nowhere else in the world. And that's a real conundrum, because is it a sort of foreign invading species that we should get rid of, or is it one of the very few species that Scotland has that lives nowhere else in the world and should actually go to the top of their conservation priorities? So that's a conundrum, but this mixing up of the world's species is happening at such an unprecedented rate that these evolutionary changes driven by hybridization are probably taking place faster than has ever happened before in the history of life on Earth. God, it's so interesting when you think it through, isn't it? But if you look at the reverse of that, and um, you, um, I know it's a kind of a scenario that you present towards the end of the book, when you uh, pitch up the question, you know, whether if humans were to disappear, what would happen to all the species uh, in the earth? And, you know, what would we see uh, in terms of plant varieties or whatever it is? Well, what do you think it would look like? Well, of course, the, the, the best thing about um, making a forecast uh, about the long-term future is I will never know what, how wrong I was. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, of course, one can't imagine exactly what the future is going to be and who on earth knows what humans will have done to the planet in 300 or 500 years' time with all sorts of new technologies, etc. However, if we were just to remove humans today instantly and imagine what happens to the planet, the interesting thing is that we've moved so many species to new parts of the world. So um, ribwort planting, a kind of meadow plant, now grows on every continent. And so over the course of the following tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of years, it will leave offspring of new species will develop in each of these new regions. There are now rats, I'm sorry to have to mention it, there are now rats on virtually every oceanic island on the planet. So if we removed all the humans and just left the rats to get on with it, we would have thousands, probably maybe even 10,000 different species of rat descendants existing on the planet in a, a million years' time. We might even have some things that we, you know, nice flowers and... Um, uh, there's, uh, let me think, so, so the grey squirrel in um, Britain, for example, um, the grey squirrel would by that time have turned into a new species of squirrel that only lives in Europe. So think far enough ahead and all of these new species that we, all of these species that we've moved to new parts of the world will turn into new things in the places where they have turned up. A sort of historical model for this is when North and South America came into contact with one another about three to five million years ago. And animals and plants from the North moved down into South America. Animals and plants from South America moved up into North America. And so North America, for example, was a source of deer. There were no deer in South America at that time. The deer moved down into South America. 
Africa, and a few million years later, there's half a dozen or more different species of deer that now only live in South America. So this movement of species back and forth across the planet that we have already done is going to alter the trajectory of evolution on every continent for the entire future of life on Earth. So last question for you, Chris. Do you think based on the research that you've put together, do you think we take, need to take a more optimistic view of change and just accept that change is happening, whether it's, you know, with our lived environment, whether it's our personal relationships, whatever it is, change is fundamental and that we maybe should take a less um, negative view and embrace, well, what we have within that change? I think we should have pessimism and optimism in equal measures. The pessimism to identify what the challenges are that are coming back, coming, uh, coming our way, and to pull back from those worst things. And we know that climate change is likely to drive a bunch of species extinct, so let us pull back from that and minimize the amount of climate change that actually takes place. But equally, there are species that are thriving and perhaps more that could thrive in the human-altered world. And so rather than say the whole world's going to pot, let's just have a kind of crisis about it, we could think, how do we minimize the losses of the things that we've already got? But equally, how do we maximize future biological gains so that the ecosystems of the planet continue to operate and they continue to deliver benefits from people living on this admittedly very greatly human altered planet. biologist, ecologist and teacher Dr Christy Thomas. Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction is published by Penguin Books and retails for just under €12 in paperback. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Okay, all that's left for me to do now is to say thank you for listening and a big shout out to the lovely Jojo on sound. We've been Talking Books... I'd like to close tonight's broadcast with the perceptive and measured words of Christy Thomas from Inheritors of the Earth, where Chris writes, No change is not an option when we contemplate the future. Our choices are all about the direction and speed of future change. We can look forward to future changes with an element of excitement and interest, not just with foreboding. This does not let us off the hook. However, it is entirely within our capacity to turn the earth into a place that is far worse for humans and also far worse for most but not all other forms of life. We need to be vigilant, but simply regretting that things are no longer as they were and venting our frustration at the unnatural state of the world is not the way forward. Let's make the best choices that are possible, accepting that humans are part of the new natural world order. How true. Good night.